All right, we, today we're going to be covering the elements of rhetoric. The three things you can tap into to persuade your audience. You see, we've been looking at um, classical Greece, the philosophies, the moral philosophies of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, studying their various contributions. And today we're specifically going to look at the contributions of Aristotle in the field of rhetoric. Now, as Christians, we know that rhetoric can be very powerful. Name some very powerful orators in human history. Martin Luther. Luther, I like it. Any others? Adolf Hitler. Winston Churchill. Barack Obama. Great orators. Great orators. I didn't say good people necessarily, but great orators. And we as Christians know that rhetoric can be very powerful. Does God need rhetoric to change the hearts of humans? course not. God can use a donkey as a prophet, but our goal is to not be a donkey, right? Our goal is to prepare the horse for battle as best we can, knowing though that victory belongs to the Lord. And so we want to use good rhetoric. We want to glorify God, not ourselves. And, uh, and we want to use good rhetoric, not because we trust in it. Makes sense? Um, but what does good rhetoric involve? Or, or what is... What are three aspects of persuasive rhetoric? Let's put it that way. How can we persuade our audience? What good is a, an education if you can't persuade your, your spouse or your children or the, the people around you to follow Jesus Christ and to believe in the truth and, be, and good, goodness and beauty? And so the three aspects of persuasive rhetoric are logic, pathos, and ethos. You can go ahead and list those. We're going to talk about each one in turn. Logic, pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S, and ethos, E-T-H-O-S. So let's begin with logic. And this is probably somewhat self-explanatory. It's not easy to persuade someone if your speech or your sermon or your argument or your opening um comments of the debate are illogical, irrational, and disordered, right? Not easy to persuade someone that way. You need to, to make use of logic. You need to have arguments or speeches or talks that are reasonable and that are rational and that are intellectual. And you can, you can use good arguments to persuade. Do good arguments always persuade? No, but good arguments can and very often do persuade. And so here are some of the things that logic involves, and you can write these down. There's five of them. Careful arguments. Number two, evidence. Offering evidence to your listeners so that they might be persuaded to your position. It's raining outside. I don't believe you. Well, look, at your, look with your own eyes. See the, the water on the bottom of my feet. Notice how my clothing is absolutely soaked. Evidence. Number three, verified information. Information that you can verify, perhaps with um, research, with footnotes, with statistics, with um, anecdotes. Another thing you, that is included in logic is offering up multiple sources. This is what the Apostle Paul says. This is what the Apostle Peter says. This is what Martin Luther says. This is what John Calvin says. This is what Albert Einstein says. You know, appeal to various sources of authority. And then making sure you explain things thoroughly. 
The first one was careful arguments. So you can see what I'm doing right now is to, is to some degree making use of the logic side of rhetoric. I'm giving you well-ordered, structured notes with you know, bullet points and explanations. Make sense? So let's think about this. What are some logical arguments we could use to convince you to do your homework carefully and diligently? You will make good grades. It will improve your GPA. Yes, that's good. That's a good logical argument. Of course, I don't care about my GPA. Do you have any other logical arguments? That's why I should try hard and be diligent with my homework. I'm sorry? You won't be grounded. Yeah, it'll, it'll keep you from being punished. I like that. Very good. I don't care if I get punished. Do you have any other logical arguments for me? You won't. You'll be an idiot. It will contribute to your eventual idiot status. Yes, I like that. I don't want to be an idiot, so you got me. I'm going to do my homework. All right now, but is every student convinced with logical arguments? No, of course not. And that's why you need pathos and ethos. And sometimes even those don't work. But all we can do is our, our best when it comes to persuading people of doing the right thing. So what are some of the things that logic entails? Here's another list. Logic entails, when you are making use of the logical aspects of an argument, it entails comparisons. Number one, comparisons. I can give you a comparison, which is an analogy. When you do your homework each day, showing yourself to be faithful over the little things, God promises in response to, to increase your storehouse, to give you more things to be responsible for. You want to be useful? You want to be a, stir, a steward? You want to be entrusted with, with um, God's good gifts and resources? Well, you have to show yourself faithful over the little things. If you can't do your homework well, how can you manage uh, $2 million worth of assets? That's a good logical argument, and it's, uh, I'm using analogy. I'm using comparison. I could say that if you sow seeds of laziness and sloth and deceitfulness and half-hearted um, effort, then you will reap a harvest of laziness and deceit and half-hearted efforts. That's comparison. All right. Reading assignments is like sowing seed. Or I could say reading your, your books is like working out in the gym. If you work out in the gym, you get big biceps. You work out by reading books, you get a big brain. If you don't, you stay a dummy. Right? There you go. Um, another, another aspect of logic is cause and effect thinking. The Bible has a lot of cause and effect, lo effect logical arguments. Sloth leads to... What does sloth lead to? Poverty. Poverty, that's right. Not always, but generally. Third, deductive reasoning. Sometimes you can make deductions. I might say if I'm trying to convince you that God cares for you and that he's not withholding, bad, withholding things from you for no good reason, I might say to you, he gave his son to die for you. Why would he withhold lesser things? If he's withholding it from you, it must be because it's not good for you yet like giving um, bourbon to a baby. It's a good thing, and one day the baby will be ready for it, but you don't give bourbon to babies unless you are a bad parent that puts them to sleep for too long so that you can do whatever you want to do. All right. Inductive reasoning, that's the opposite of deductive reasoning. And that's where you make smaller points leading up to a big point. I could say, hey... Does God care about the lilies of the field? 
What do you what do you think? Yes. Does he care about the sparrows? Yes. Therefore, we can induce that he cares about you. Make sense? And then last but not least, well no, actually not last, examples. You can give examples. Personal anecdotes, stories. Next, you can elaborate. When you are writing a speech, which you will be doing, many, or a sermon, or a presentation, or opening statements in a debate, you can elaborate. You know, you show the importance of something, the, the importance of a particular point to your life or to the world around. So you might teach a group or argue that studying hard is, is worth it, but then you might paint a picture of how that study will impact their life and their community and their future. You are elaborating on the point. And then finally, you um, have to make sure that you use coherent speech, co- coherent thought. Carefully organizing your speech, not going on rabbit trails, and building an argument over time. You want, as someone is listening to you, to see the dominoes fall in succession. You want them to to believe that you really do have a point that you're making. And though they don't yet know the full point, they are listening to you as you build your argument and it's coherent. If you're always jumping all over the place... Um, that's a good discussion, and it can be fun, but it's not necessarily a good argument. It's not necessarily very persuasive. Got it? All right, now what are the dangers of logical thinking? I think one of the biggest dangers is thinking that your logic can penetrate a hard heart. A hard heart does not care about logic. A stubborn person who, or someone who is having an emotional outburst, who's touchy, offended, or murmuring, you can give them all the logical arguments in the world you want, but they're not ready to think about this. They don't want to hear it. And so you have to realize that the brain follows the will. If they don't want it, no matter how many logical arguments you make for it, they're not going to believe it. And as a preacher, I run into this all the time. I can present clear truths of Scripture. I can show people, for example, the clear truth of God's election of some for salvation. And if someone wants to believe it and doesn't have a hang-up about it, they'll see the verses. It's very clear. But if someone hates that for some reason, they will not see the verses. It the hate of that truth, the stubbornness against it, it literally makes it so their eyeballs cannot see the Bible verses. It's very interesting. And, uh, and some truths the Bible say, says are hard to endure, and some people just can't take it. It goes against everything they've ever heard or ever thought, and they're just not, they simply don't want to have to rethink the whole Bible. And so they're just like, I don't want to hear it. Logic doesn't work on people like that. You know what I mean? So you've got to know your audience. If your wife is uh, having an emotional um, outburst because the house just burnt down, that's not the time for a you know, carefully crafted three point logical analysis of the situation. That, that's really the time for you to just shut up and like give her a hug, right? Because logos, this is the logic of things. You know, you have to know your audience, right? You have to know the proper timing. If they just woke up in the morning and they're grumpy, they don't want to hear your logical arguments, right? Unless you're trolling them, of course. All right, moving on to the second one. Pathos, pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S. And that's where you... 
tap into the emotions, the emotions hoping to persuade. You can picture a TV evangelist with a telephone at the bottom of the screen trying to get people to send money to his legacy project. They very often don't use logical arguments. Sometimes they don't even use biblical promises. They use emotional arguments. Emotional arguments. Or if I was trying to fundraise for a puppy, uh, a pound, where puppies could be rescued and adopted and, and given to new homes, what sort of effort, what sort of effects might I use in a commercial? Videos of like... A lot of, a lot of pathos. Uh, what kind of music would I be playing? Sad music. And what sort of animals would I be depicting? Sad kittens. Now, you see sad kittens or little orphans with their tummy sticking out and flies buzzing all around their head. And it's like a little number of the screen. You're like, they're, they're pulling your heartstrings. They're using emotion to try to persuade you. Or you can be at a gas station and someone comes up and they give you this long sob story about how their life is in ruins and all they need is $10 so they can get a tank of gas because they ran out of gas and they will just take that $10 and they will get gas and they will walk down the road and be able to fill up their car so that they can get to the hospital to visit their dying grandmother. And it's usually a lie. But they're trying to evoke emotions. Preachers try to evoke emotions. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it, Right? Um, it is one of the ways in which you can attempt to persuade. And it includes vivid imagery. It's hard to, to evoke emotions if you don't use specific language. You need to use words that evoke imagery like bright, moist, noxious, You can tell personal stories. Telling personal stories always evokes emotion, especially if you can tap into to people's you know, fears or anxieties or the things that make them angry. You can tell a story of injustice or a story of tragedy to get the audience raging all together with you or, or to get them all to feel sad and compassionate about what you're speaking about. Now, what are some words that you might you might might um, say that would evoke anger, rage, wrath. You have any of that on the top of your mind? You ugly. Oh, well, personal uh, insults would certainly do it. Yeah. How about the how about the letters I R S? Boo, boo. You see, if you believe what I'm telling you, we can together. We can stick it to the man. See, it is appealing to emotion. That's what populists often do. Appealing to emotions, bringing out the, that rage, right? Or, um, well, there's plenty of things. Um, the dangers, though, are, I think are clear. What are the dangers? Well, manipulation. You know, Adolf Hitler was not just a good orator because he used logical arguments. In fact, his logic... His logos aspects of his rhetoric were, were terrible because what he was stating was absolutely evil and untrue. He was a, he was a nationalistic socialist, and, and so his logos was untrue, but his pathos, that's what attracted people. His, his gestures, his mannerisms, his, his whole persona. And he evoked 
nationalistic sentiments, you know, the German peoples, the, the master race, and he evoked hatred and rage about the, the difficulties and the breakdown of society, blaming it on the Jews. And so he was able to manipulate large crowds of people by evoking strong emotions. Right? Another danger of emotional rhetoric and overdoing the pathos aspect of rhetoric is that if you persuade someone with their emotions, it doesn't usually last. I mean, think, has anyone here ever been to Christian camp before? You know, you get around a campfire. That's kind of touching, sentimental. And people tell sad stories. They have share time. Everyone's being vulnerable and open. There's a lot of connectivity and community there. And, 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 and there's usually a, a, a lot of personal anecdotes and stories from the pastor to evoke various emotions. Jackson, have you been to one of these events before? And uh, do, do you ever fall? Do you ever like get all oh, weepy and you know? And you take your stick and you throw it in the fire. I'm never gonna do that again. Just you just laugh at it. You, Jackson doesn't seem like someone who can be emotionally manipulated. Yeah. He doesn't have emotions. Yes, he is. Uh, his heart is made of glass and ice. He's Cho from the Minimalists. Yeah. So no, but most people, most humanoids, um, when they sit around a campfire and there's little stories, they're like, "I'm never gonna do that again," and weeping and sobbing. But you know, a couple weeks go by when they get back home, and it's like back to the same old, same old, because they were persuaded a little, a little too much ethos, not enough logos, right? I mean, a little too much pathos. And so there are some dangers to that as well. Um, but that is another one of the tools you can use to provoke, to persuade, to persuade. All right. And what about, uh, there's one more example. What about moonlit walks on the beach? Oh, I'm in love with him. You know, he's the one. And you can see how the, the moon and the, and the ambiance and the beauty of the setting evoke certain romantic ideals and emotions. Ah, uh, and you can be, Seduced, easily persuaded to, to, to go too far, to do what you wouldn't normally do if you had your, your brain intact. And that's because the, the person has used pathos to persuade you. But he can also use ethos. Ethos is not where you evoke emotions, so to speak, but where you tap into common values and beliefs. So if, if we continue with the dating analogy, he's persuading you with arguments, for example. Maybe he has some good arguments. He wants you to marry him. He's uh, convinced you that he's on a good career path, that he has a good relationship with his parents, that your, your dad likes him. Those are good arguments. But also he's got the moon you know, as his sidekick, as his wingman. And the, and the calm, relaxing waves of the sea. And, you're, and you're, your heart is just fluttering with so many emotions. You're so happy, so charmed. But then he starts talking about having a lot of kids. Ooh, it's what you've always wanted. Yes, I want a lot of kids. He wants a lot of kids. Oh, and I like small cottages, country homes, down gravel roads. Not, you know, brick houses that all look the same. Oh, he's... This is exactly what I like. He, it's to see common values. See, common values can also persuade, and that's called ethos. When you tap into values, beliefs, 
right? If I were to make an argument with you and present the argument as you believe this if you love America. And if you don't believe this, you hate America. Well, if you all want to love America or want people to at least think you love America, you can see how that could be persuasive. Or if you all want to be righteous and feel righteous. And I could talk bad about, I could talk bad about people outside and be like, yeah, but all of us, we agree, don't we? Who agrees? Raise your hand if you agree. Hey, of course we do. Well, of course, now you're going to be persuaded through the rhetoric of ethos to say, well, I don't want to be like those people. I want to be accepted like these people. So I better raise my hand too. See, that's ethos. It's tapping into common values or common beliefs or common desires that a, a, your audience might have with you. If, if everyone in the room wants to exalt themselves and I'm giving you techniques on how to exalt yourself, you can see how you might be more willing to agree with me and be persuaded. If I'm giving you uh, our, uh, talks about how to build a just society and everyone in the room wants justice, we want justice. And, and I'm saying, well, this is how you have it. You can be more persuaded to agree with it. That's ethos, right? So back to our dating analogy. The boy is trying to convince you to marry him. What would he say if he's using Lagos? Jude? I have a well-paying job. I have a well-paying job. That is a good argument. What would he say if he's using pathos? He may not even have to say anything. He might just be riding down the road in his, in his convertible with the top down, the wind blowing in your hair, and you're just so you know, swooning over the romance of it all. Now that, what would that be called? Pathos, that's right. And then what, what an argument that he'd use if it would be ethos? We both want a lot of kids. Yes, <laughs> we both love family. You know. Yes, I like that. And and these things these things aren't necessarily bad, but there are some dangers in each one of them. What do you think the dangers in misusing ethos as uh, in rhetoric? What do you think some of the dangers might be? You kind of ignore some of you, the. You ignore the lagos. That's the problem. You see, just because you share a value with a particular person doesn't necessarily mean that their arguments are true. And if you don't share a particular value with a person, doesn't mean necessarily that their arguments are false. It's either true or not true. And, and it, it stands apart from the pathos or the ethos of the presentation. So there are some dangers you know, and, and another danger, and you need to write this down, is that when, when using ethos to persuade, it can very often um, morph into mani- manipulative flattery. If you just say the things that people want to hear, hope, change, make America great again, who doesn't want that? You see, if I just say things that you all are down for, you can see how I can sort of Manipulate you. How can manipulate you? Get you to believe me when it's not necessarily true or or even real. Is the contractor here? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be there in th- three minutes. All right. So back to our introduction. As Christians, we know that when preparing arguments. That we, it's like preparing a horse for battle. We prepare the horse for battle, but ultimately victory belongs to the, to the Lord. That's right. 
The Lord can win a battle with a small force or a large force. But if we have to choose, we want a large force, right? He can, he can prophesy through a donkey, or he can prophesy through a great orator. And if we have to choose, we want to be great. We want to give speeches and presentations and sermons that are beautiful and artistic because, well, look, when God created animals, he, he created them beautifully. He, he gave birds the ability to sing. He didn't have to do that. And, and you want your presentations and your speeches and sermons to, to be beautiful, not overdoing it, not getting in the way, and certainly not taking away from the glory of God. There's nothing necessarily wrong about using pathos, ethos, and logos. Um, these are just things that Aristotle and many others have noticed are, are in persuasive rhetoric. But the most important thing as Christians is not to persuade. We might know how people are persuaded, and we want to be able to have those tools. But it's more important to be faithful to God than to win your argument. Make sense? It's more important to be faithful to God because, let me ask you, are there any prophets in Scripture that were very rhetorically gifted, had great logos, pathos, and ethos, and people tried to kill them anyway? Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah is a great example. Jesus is a great example. He had perfect of all of these and uh, yet, people tried to kill him. Right? And you see, if you're faithful, it's possible that no one is persuaded. Um, if you're faithful, it's possible that no one thinks highly of you and you have terrible credibility. And that makes your ethos terrible. And so no one wants to listen to you. It's possible that if you're faithful, um, folks turn on you. However, if at all possible, we want to use the best rhetoric we possibly can. Make sense? All right, that's it for today.